Hello and welcome to Prehistory, the Archaeology of the Ancient Near East, with me, Jane Gastra. Last episode, we left the Neolithic behind, at least officially, to have a look at the early Chalcolithic of Anatolia. As we saw, this was a bit of a misnomer in two senses, as the early Chalcolithic of Anatolia was, in spite of its name, made up of a series of cultures which were very much still those of the late Ceramic Neolithic. In another sense, it is also wrong to think of all of Anatolia in the 6th millennium as being early Chalcolithic, since there is a big part of Anatolia which we did not talk about last time, and which during the 6th millennium BCE was firmly in the Neolithic. See, last time we talked about the early Chalcolithic 6th millennium of central and western Anatolia, but while this does cover essentially all of Asia Minor, it doesn't cover all of the areas that are called Anatolia. In this episode, we're having a look to the east, at the large area of mountains, foothills, and valleys of eastern Anatolia, which runs to the north of northern Mesopotamia and into the Caucasus Mountains. More specifically, we're looking at a region in the southern part of the Caucasus called Transcaucasia, which makes up the eastern edge of modern-day Turkey, the very northernmost tip of Iran, as well as the modern countries of Georgia, Armenia, and Azerbaijan. When I neglected to talk about eastern Anatolia in the last episode, it was because, apart from those parts of southeastern Anatolia which are part of northern Mesopotamia, the northeastern parts come here as part of Transcaucasia. This region is a combination of mountains and river valleys. We have the southern Caucasus Mountains, as well as large river valleys along the Kura, Araxis, and Rioni rivers. For most of the periods that we've been talking about since the end of the Pleistocene, Transcaucasia was home to Mesolithic hunter-gatherers. Now, when we talked about the end of the Pleistocene to the south, we talked about the Epipaleolithic back in episodes 9 and 10, where we had hunter-gatherers who settled down into villages which were occupied for a season or two or even occupied year-round. Here in the southern Caucasus, this doesn't happen. The time period between the end of the Pleistocene and the beginning of the Neolithic usually gets referred to instead as the Mesolithic, or the Middle Stone Age. To be a little more specific, what we're mostly talking about here is a local Mesolithic culture called the Trialetian Mesolithic, which first appears around 11 or 10,000 BCE and continues until about 6,000 Cal BCE. Unlike the more settled Epipaleolithic villages that we saw to the south, the hunter-gatherers of the Trialetian Mesolithic moved around a bit more. This was almost certainly to avoid stripping any one area of its available plants and animals. As people were moving around every few days, every few weeks, or few months, we aren't really exactly sure how long the sites that we have were lived in at any one time. People didn't bother putting a lot of effort into building permanent stone-based houses where they were staying, and were probably living in tents or small houses made of woven branches, a lot like what we saw in the Upper Paleolithic to the south. We have a few sites out in the open air, but most of the information that we have about people in the Trialetian Mesolithic comes from caves and rock shelters. This is also a lot like in the Upper Paleolithic, since it's easier to spot caves and rock shelters around the landscape today and to excavate them to see what turns up, than it is to go randomly digging all over the open landscape in the hopes of finding a small buried hunter-gatherer site. So just because we're getting most of our information from cave sites doesn't mean that people in the Trialetian Mesolithic were less advanced than people in the Epipaleolithic to the south. 
it just means that they needed to move around a bit more often. Like the Epipalolithic groups to the south, these Mesolithic groups would have harvested wild stands of grain, berries, nuts and other plants, and hunted animals. The specific species in their diet varied a bit, as different animals and plants were more common here than they were on the plains of Mesopotamia or in the valleys of the Levant. In eastern Anatolia and the Caucasus, people hunted a lot more deer and wild boar than gazelle or ibex. They also seem to have hunted bear, but not necessarily for food. The little cut marks and other signs of butchery that we find on animal bones from Mesolithic sites show that animals were skinned and that the carcasses were segmented into pieces before the portions were taken away and cooked. When we find the remains of bears, though, we only find the butchery marks associated with skinning, and no marks associated with the dismantling of a carcass or the removal of meat. This suggests that bears may have been specifically hunted only for their fur. Just like with the Epipaleolithic, we know most about people in the Trialetian Mesolithic from their stone tools, as these are still the most commonly found artifacts that we can compare to look for regional or cultural differences. The chipstone tools here share with the Epipaleolithic a tradition based on the use of blades and microlithic bladelets with mostly unidirectional but also prismatic and bullet cores, and the use of pressure flaking to retouch and to shape tools. This is not all that different from what we see to the south, at least in terms of the general technology used for making stone tools. As the Caucasus are one of the big sources of obsidian that we have in the Near East, it's no surprise that this Mesolithic Microlithic tradition is almost completely dominated by the use of obsidian, as, well, it's the good stuff. Unlike with the Epipaleolithic or even Upper Paleolithic to the south, in the Southern Caucasus we also have a long tradition of rock art. We actually get a lot of rock art in this region, usually overlapping sets of carved outlines of humans and animals. Carved rock art is really difficult to date, especially when it's outside and exposed on the side of a rock shelter or a cliff, or even carved into slabs of exposed stone underfoot. There is no paint to sample and test, no archaeological layers underfoot to excavate, and no artifacts left in place to study. We only have the carved images in bare stone. There does seem to have been a tradition of rock art all the way through prehistory here, going back into the Upper Paleolithic, as some of the animals that are shown in a few areas of rock art are animals that were only present in this region during the Pleistocene. Unfortunately, when people have tried to figure out what sort of rock art was used in different periods, they're mostly left with attempting to compare the styles of how the humans and animals were carved, and attempting to divide them up based on how they think that the art should have evolved. In other words, it's largely guesswork. It's reasonably well-informed guesswork, with lots of theories about the evolution of artistic styles, but in terms of how reliably we can place the images within a single time frame, it is still pretty much guesswork. So the main difference between these Mesolithic populations and the Epipaleolithic hunter-gatherers that we talked about from the rest of the Near East is a difference of time and place. These Mesolithic populations moved around a bit more frequently, so we don't get the preserved remains of villages to study. What we have instead is a series of campsites in caves and rock shelters. The main difference, though, is that this mobile hunting and gathering way of life lasted a lot longer here than it did in the south. Hunter-gatherers continued to roam the landscapes in eastern Anatolia and the Caucasus until about 6000 Cal BCE. 
There must have been some sort of contact with their neighbors to the south, at least occasionally, if only at the very northern edges of the Mesopotamian Neolithic and the very southern edges of the Caucasian Mesolithic. But people seem to have been perfectly happy collecting their food in the wild in Transcaucasia for more than 3,000 years after people in northern Mesopotamia moved into farming settled landscapes. This extended period of hunting and gathering means that when Neolithic farming villages arrive here after 6,000 Cal BCE, we have a lot of questions about why we see this change in how people lived and how they got their food. The big question is whether or not these Neolithic villages contain the same people, or I suppose the descendants of the same people, who were hunting and gathering here in the Mesolithic. Or are these groups of people who moved into the area from Mesopotamia or from other parts of Anatolia? Or are we looking at a mix? When Neolithic farming villages start to turn up in Transcaucasia from about 6,000 Cal BCE, we are already in what is locally called either the Late Neolithic, the Pottery Neolithic, or the Ceramic Neolithic. There has been some argument in the past that the earliest stages of the arrival of farming villages took place during a local pre-pottery Neolithic. But with more excavation and research, it turns out that pottery turns up at the same time as the earliest farming villages. It's just that in the earliest generations of local farmers, pottery wasn't really all that common. When these villages first turn up, they not only have the admittedly not that commonly used pottery, but also a full set of domesticated plants and animals, and a pretty common setup for the villages and the houses inside of these villages. When Neolithic villages start to turn up in Transcaucasia, we also get something new. The earliest known domesticated grape pips have been found in this region, along with some pips from wild grapes, with both turning up at multiple sites across the southern Caucasus making Transcaucasia one of the likely locations for the first domestication of grapes, and also the earliest production of wine from grapes anywhere in the world. When we look at the villages, houses, and pottery during the Neolithic, there have been arguments that various bits of it shows influence from pottery Neolithic groups of central Anatolia, or of northern Mesopotamia, or even of northwestern Iran. Some of these associations do seem to hold up, at least very generally but a lot of them are pretty general and sometimes a bit tenuous. What we definitely have, even at the earliest Neolithic villages in Transcaucasia, is multiple Neolithic cultures present in different regions. Overall, the Neolithic in Transcaucasia is known as the Shulaveri Shomtepe, or sometimes Shomu Shulaveri culture, named after the sites of Shulaveri Skora in modern Georgia, and the site of Shomtepe in modern Azerbaijan. Within this, though, there are several regional groups that do things a bit differently from one another. We have one group in the central part of Transcaucasia, along the central Kura River Valley, another in the eastern and central parts of Transcaucasia, in the regions of Nakhichevin, the Migani Steppe, and the Mill Plain and a third in the southern and southwestern part of Transcaucasia in the Ararat plain of Armenia and eastern Turkey. One thing that these regions have in common is that most of the sites are small, about one hectare in size, although we do find some sites as big as four or five hectares. 
Another thing that all three areas seem to have in common is that the houses that we find in the little farming villages in all of these areas tend to be built without stone foundations. And they're usually round or oval shaped, although with some differences. We do get some differences in the animals that people kept. Once we get Neolithic villages, hunting is usually only a minor part of the diet, with hunted animals making up only about 10% of the meat part of people's diets across these regions. In terms of the domesticated animals that they were keeping and then eating, people living in the southern regions, if both the Ararat Plain and the Nakhichevan groups, kept a mix of sheep and goats and cattle, as well as some pigs. People living in the central part of Transcaucasia tended to lean a lot more towards herding sheep and goats, with far fewer cattle and pigs making it onto the menu. In the central part of Transcaucasia, villages were built of small round houses made from mud bricks. In the earlier part of the 6th millennium, these mud bricks tended to be shaped by hand. But towards the middle and the end of the 6th millennium, people moved over to shaping their mud bricks in a mold, traces of which can be seen in the edges of the bricks in houses from villages of the later centuries of the Neolithic. These houses were usually small, about 2.5 to 5 meters, or about 8 to 15 feet in diameter, and were built in clusters with curved walls in between them. These probably acted a bit like individual rooms for a house, with an open courtyard between them, with a larger building to sleep in and maybe to do some activities, and smaller buildings for storage, crafts, preparing food, and so on. Sometimes we have more than one of these larger buildings built side by side, with a little connecting door or passage between them, and sometimes they're completely separate, even if they're right next to one another. In other cases, we also have one of the smaller buildings built right up next to a large building, like a storage annex. These, plus the presence of round houses, have been compared to the rounded Tholos houses of the Halaf culture to the south, although these round houses and Halaf villagers were spaced well apart from one another, unlike here in Transcaucasia. These house clusters were built close together, meaning that sites look like a maze of round buildings and walls. Sometimes there are little streets and walkways between them, but they're not always easy to find, and sometimes it just looks as if people walked through the courtyards of all of their neighbors when they wanted to get in and out of the village. The houses themselves tended to be built of either dark brown or yellow mud brick, and sometimes people mix these together to make pretty designs, either by mixing mud bricks of different colors or by using one color for the clay of the mud bricks and a contrasting color for the mortar that went between them. The mud bricks themselves were flat on most sides with one rounded face, which we call plano-convex mud bricks, or flat and convex mud bricks. What sort of shape these houses had, apart from being round at the base, has been a bit more of an argument. Some of the walls of these houses are preserved to a decent height, and we can see that they lean inwards a little bit. This has led people to argue that the houses must have been made of complete domes of mud brick, like little beehives. Others have taken a look at the thickness of the walls of these houses, which are not very thick, and argue that the walls would never have been able to support a domed roof made of mud brick, so the roof must have been made with timber poles and presumably some sort of thatch or thin cover of clay plaster. The wooden beam roof idea has some support from finds at sites such as Mentesh Tepe, where you have a ring of post holes in the periphery of houses, which would have acted as roof support columns and of discoveries of semicircular indentations at the top of well-preserved walls, 
which would have held roof beams set into the top of the walls, which we find at sites like Imiris. Judging by the inward curvature of the walls, these houses would not have been very tall, regardless of what type of roof they used, and so they would have only been single-story, being at least 2.5 meters or 8 feet high. Extra height was added into these houses, though, by digging out the floors down a little on the inside, so that anyone entering a house through its narrow doorway would have needed to take a step down to get in, which would have been slightly awkward as the narrow doorway would only have been about 50 to 60 centimeters or 18 to 24 inches wide. While the narrow door would not have provided all that much in the way of ventilation, houses often would also have narrow slits in the wall to let in light and air, and presumably they also would have had some sort of flue in the roof to let the smoke out as these houses also tend to have a hearth or an oven on the inside of the main building, or sometimes also one of the smaller buildings, usually near the door. The insides of the houses could be plastered in yellow clay, either on the walls with the floor left as beaten earth, or on the floor as well. Traces of red ochre on the floors of some of the houses suggest that these might have also been painted. Inside these houses, at least inside the larger dwelling in a complex, as well as in the courtyards, we find built-in clay storage bins, usually set partway into the floor. Based on studies of the surfaces of the clay from inside these bins, they were probably mostly used for storage, such as for storing grain. We also tend to find tools or groups of artifacts either inside the storage bins or right next to them, suggesting that they were also good places for people to keep things tidied up and out of the way. To the south and southwest, villages on the Ararat Plain were also built of tightly packed clusters of small round buildings with walls connecting them together. While some of these houses could be made from mud brick, most of the houses were built of pise, tempered with finely chopped straw and husks from domestic grains that were mixed into the mud to give it added support. The houses in these villages tended not to dig down the floors on the insides, and the floors were usually made from beaten clay instead of plastered. In levels from the earliest part of the Neolithic at sites like Aretchen or Kultepe, we also get some rectangular buildings, but these mostly disappear in favor of round houses for most of the rest of the 6th millennium. The inside of the walls of these houses could be left in either the pisse that was used for wall construction, or sometimes were plastered over with plaster made of yellow clay, like the houses of central Transcaucasia. In at least some houses, such as those at Kultepe, the floors may have also been painted red with red ochre. In some of the buildings, studies have found high concentrations of spherolites, which are the microscopic particles that you only find in the poo of cattle, sheep, and goats, which suggests that at least some of the buildings in these house clusters may have been used as animal stables. While the houses in these villages were tightly packed together in the earlier part of the 6th millennium, like those in villages in the central part of Transcaucasia, Towards the later parts of the 6th millennium, the houses tend to be spread out a little bit more, with at least visible pathways between them. In these later levels, we also start to see more and more houses being built from mud brick instead of the earlier chaff-tempered pise, at least at some sites, like Aretchen. In the east and the southeast of Transcaucasia, in the Nakhchevan and the Mill Plain regions, we get houses built from mud brick although from flat-sided mud bricks rather than the plano-convex ones used in central Transcaucasia. These houses also tend to be small, round, and set out in groups connected by walls. The villages in this region seem to have been lived in for shorter periods of time, 
suggesting that people moved around a bit more and founded a new village every few generations. These villages also seem to turn up a little bit later. While in central and southwestern Transcaucasia, we have villages dating back all the way to 6,000 Cal BCE. Thus far, in the east and the southeast, we've only found villages dating back as far as 5650 Cal BCE. There might have been some Neolithic villages here from the early part of the 6th millennium, but so far, none has yet been found, or at least not dated. In the earliest levels of sites, such as Ilani Tepe, we see some of these round houses being built with little rectangular annexes attached to the side, which is similar to what we see with some of the Halaf Tholos houses, although over time, these annexes fell out of fashion. The floors of these houses were sometimes lowered on the insides, but were more often built at ground level. The insides of these houses would have a hearth and would also have built-in storage bins. Over time, especially in the area of the Mughal steppe, we see a change in the houses from all round or oval to the occasional presence of freestanding rectangular houses mixed in across the village. These sometimes have the interior walls finished in lime plaster, which was occasionally also painted. We also have some slightly unusual structures, such as at the site of Kameltepe, where we have a large mud brick platform built into the middle of the group of houses, or some villages which have ditches dug along the perimeter. This change in house shape wasn't limited to the Mughal steppes though, nor even to the east and southeast, as rectangular houses have also occasionally been found at other sites from the end of the 6th millennium such as at the site of Goitepe in central Transcaucasia, where one rectangular house was found in the middle of a walled complex of small, rounded buildings. While these three regions of Transcaucasia all see the arrival of small farming villages made up of clusters of round, or mostly round, buildings in the arrival of the Neolithic, they show differences between the regions in how these buildings were built and what they were built from. These small variations from one region to the next are also seen in the stone tools used by these different groups of communities. Across all of these regions, most of the stone tools are made of obsidian, just like they were in the Mesolithic. When we look at the 6th millennium cultures at northern Mesopotamia and Anatolia, we saw that people living in Halaf villages were mostly making flakes and making tools that were made from flakes while people living in early Chalcolithic villages in Anatolia were still mostly making blades and were making their tools from blades. Something that the Neolithic villages of Transcaucasia have in common with one another, as well as with Anatolia, is that they're also still mostly making blades and making tools from blades, although not everywhere and not over the entire Neolithic. Another thing that they have in common with one another, but not so much with other regions, such as northern Mesopotamia, is their groundstone axes. We get groundstone axes in both northern Mesopotamia and different parts of Anatolia, but they're pretty rare. Here in Transcaucasia, though, they're a lot more common, and we get both stone axes which would have been tied to shafts, as well as stone adzes which would have a hole drilled through the base to be stuck directly onto a wooden handle. Mace heads are a lot less common here, but they are still present. These tend to be made of local stone and circular, apart from one that was found at Arkulo in central Transcaucasia, which was made of basalt and covered in little rounded knobs. We also get sling stones, like we've seen already in northern Mesopotamia, Anatolia, and the Levant. Here in Transcaucasia, the sling stones are made mostly from stone, although occasionally they are made of baked clay, like the ones in the Levant. Unlike in the Levant, these tend to be natural, unmodified round pebbles, 
of the right shape and size. While these are just pebbles, we know that they're sling stones because we tend to find them in groups inside the houses or the courtyards of our Neolithic villages. We also see a lot of well-made bone tools present across sites of Transcaucasia, with the normal bone awls, needles, and points, as well as antler hoes and mattocks, and very carefully carved bone spoons. If we look at the different regions of Transcaucasia, though, we can see that there are differences in the way that people made their stone tools. The most obvious difference is in the villages of central Transcaucasia, along the middle parts of the Kura River Valley. In the early part of the 6th millennium, people in these villages were mostly making blades. Over the course of the 6th millennium, though, this changes to a stone tool tradition made mostly using flakes. We also get a notable lack of arrowheads, similar to what we see in the Halaf. Unlike in the Halaf, though, one reason why we don't get a lot of stone arrowheads here in central Transcaucasia is that they made the arrowheads out of carved bone. When they do make blades in these later centuries, they use some advanced techniques that we've seen before, such as indirect percussion and pressure flaking. Some of these were made into sickles, which were also made directly from flakes. We know this because of the sickle gloss on blades and flakes that I've talked about before, but also because we found some of these sickles themselves with the stone blades and flakes still set into them. One nice example of this comes from the site of Goitepe, where excavators found a complete sickle made from the lower jawbone of a cow with its flakes still in place. People in Transcaucasia made a lot of elaborate tools from carved bone, but in this case, someone took advantage of the natural shape of a cow's jaw, taking out the teeth and just slotting some flakes of the right size into the gaps where the teeth were and had a ready-made sickle. Sites of the Mill Plain to the east were less elaborate than those of the Ararat Plain to the south, or even those of central Transcaucasia. People living in this area in the second half of the 6th millennium mostly made their tools from flakes, without much extra retouching and shaping of the finished pieces. Unlike in central Transcaucasia, they were less bothered about using elaborate shaping or advanced percussion techniques, even when they did decide to make blades. Neolithic villages of the Ararat Plain, in the south and southwest of Transcaucasia, continued to make blades throughout the Neolithic, mostly from prismatic cores. These were made using a variety of techniques and with a variety of core types, although with a lot of use of prismatic cores. The techniques that they used for making these blades included direct percussion, the normal hammer stone hitting directly onto a core that we've been seeing already for a very long time, as well as indirect percussion, such as using an antler tine as a chisel to direct the blow, which is something that we also see this time in Anatolia. We also see another, slightly more complicated way of making blades through percussion using a crutch or lever. This is one of those advanced techniques, as it involves setting up a little device to help you knock out blades. There is a good diagram of how this works, which I'll be putting up on the website. But this form of percussion involves putting the core inside of a little frame to which you attach a lever so that when you push down on the lever, it hits the core with a sharp point so that it takes off exactly the same amount of stone in the same way at the same angle every time. This means that you just have to keep rotating your obsidian core around a little bit, push the lever again, and you get an identical nice long blade with nice parallel sides. It's faster because the core is held in place and you don't have to worry so much about your hand-eye coordination. These blades could then either be used as cutting tools or be retouched with pressure flaking into different tool shapes. 
This use of a crutch or lever is one of those little differences that separates out sites of the Ararat Plain. While we do see a changeover to flakes at sites in central Transcaucasia, they use some advanced techniques for making the few blades that they made, but they do not seem to have used this particular advanced technique. We also get some microlithic bladelets at a few sites from this region of southern Transcaucasia, although many sites have none. Where we do find them, they also seem to be more common in the older levels of sites, from the earliest centuries of the Neolithic in this region. This is interesting, as microlithic bladelets were a big part of the stone tools of earlier Mesolithic cultures, and the presence of these microliths, at least at some sites, has been seen as evidence that at least some of these Neolithic farmers were the children of Mesolithic hunter-gatherers, who either learned about farming and gained some domesticated plants and animals, or who joined up with Neolithic villagers moving into the area from outside. Pottery is also something common to all of the Neolithic villages in Transcaucasia, and is present from the very beginning of the Neolithic across the region. In the earliest parts of the Neolithic, in the first 100 or 200 years of people living in little farming villages in these regions, pottery is a lot less common, suggesting that it may not have been as much of a part of everyday life as it became in later centuries. From the beginning of the Neolithic, though, we see regional differences in the types of pottery that people made, even if it wasn't super common in any of these regions. Overall, all of these regions share the common distinction that we see in other parts of the Near East between a coarse, plain type of pottery and a more finely made and fancy, sometimes decorated type of pottery. There are some general differences in what sorts of vessels that we find made from either the coarse or the fine wares, or in the types of pottery overall. Coarse wares tend to get a lot more simple jars, such as whole mouth jars or wide cooking jars, with very few bowls or plates made from coarse pottery. Fine pottery is just the opposite, with a lot more bowls and plates and less in the way of jars and cooking pots. A good way to think of this is that the coarse pottery was more likely to be utility goods, for storage or for cooking, and fine pottery was the fancy stuff that you ate off of. Over the course of the Neolithic across Transcaucasia, we get a general pattern of changes in the types of temper added to pottery. In the earlier part of the 6th millennium, most of the pottery was made using a mineral temper, such as fine gravel or crushed rock. Some pottery was made using chaff, or finely chopped straw and other leftovers from the harvesting of domestic grains. Over time, more and more of the pottery tends to be made with this chaff temper, and by the later part of the 6th millennium, it is the most common, and mineral temper becomes the rare one. Across all of these regions in the Neolithic, pottery of both of these types, for both coarse and fine wares, was always handmade either by building up short coils of clay or by rolling clay into flat slabs and joining them together. Which of these methods was the favorite varied a bit between regions, with sites in both central Transcaucasia and the southern Ararat Plain making pottery more often from coils, and sites in Nakichevan and the Mill Plain to the east tending to make their pottery from flat slabs. The shapes and the decoration of pottery also varies from one region to another. In central Transcaucasia, we get fairly basic shapes for most of the pottery, such as jars with either short or long necks, and bowls which can be deep, shallow, narrow, wide, or egg-shaped. Some pottery is decorated, but this is not common, and the decoration that we see is limited to added relief decoration in basic geometric shapes, such as little dots, little ovals, or maybe the occasional circle. 
The earliest hundred years or so of the Neolithic in central Transcaucasia doesn't seem to have any decoration on the pottery. As pottery became more common, we start to see a greater range of jars and bowls, as well as the very beginnings of this relief decoration, which then becomes more common over time, with something like 30% of the pottery being decorated. At some sites, we get more detailed relief decoration turning up, such as little anthropomorphic, or human-shaped, figures on the sides of pottery. Very occasionally, we see some pottery which is painted. This mostly looks like either a local imitation of Halaf pottery, or actual imported Halaf pottery. These small painted fragments are really rare though, and mostly seem to date the last few centuries of the Neolithic. Generally, when we find fragments of what look like either local imitations of Halaf pottery, or actually imported Halaf pottery, these tend to turn up in the more southern parts of Transcaucasia such as the complete Halaf vessels that were found at Kultepe in Nakhchevin. When we find these Halaf imports, mostly as fragments, they also tend to be late Halaf-style pottery, suggesting that they were only occasionally coming into Transcaucasia in the later part of the Neolithic here. This is interesting, as the pottery that we find in southern Transcaucasia on the Ararat Plain tends to be plain and undecorated. At some sites here, such as Arat Shen, it is always plain, apart from the outer surfaces being smoothed and sometimes burnished or polished. The pottery from this region is also mostly simple shapes, with whole-mouthed jars and jars with short necks, as well as bowls, which may be either narrow and deep or wide and shallow, including really small deep bowls, like cups. Decorated pottery is a bit more common in sites to the east, in Nakhichevan, the Mill Plain, and the Mughal Steppe. The pottery here is also a bit more different from what we find in central Transcaucasia or to the south in the Ararat Plain, and it seems to have borrowed a bit from the Neolithic cultures in Iran. We get a lot more chaff-tempered pottery, as well as some which has either very fine mineral temper, or which is made from clay with a naturally fine grit mixed into it and was therefore made without any added temper. Sites here also start slightly later, beginning around the middle of the 6th millennium when sites in other parts of Transcaucasia were also starting to use more chaff tempering in their pottery. So it's hard to tell if this greater use of chaff tempering to the east is a cultural difference or just a difference in timing. Vessels here also include whole mouth jars, with most of the jar-shaped vessels lacking a defined neck area. When we do see these, they come in the form of collar jars with rounded bodies and with a few very finely made bottles, or small jars with long thin necks. We also get different kinds of bowls, as well as narrow and deep bowls at a type that are called beakers, which look like tall drinking glasses and are believed to have been used in just this way. These bowl and cup forms show the most variation, along with any other pottery that was used for eating and drinking rather than for cooking. Unlike in other parts of Transcaucasia, these can also sometimes be painted. The collared jars with round bodies will often have a painted band along the body and the finely made bottles can also be painted with stripes or geometric shapes. We also get painting on bowls, at least on the more open and shallow ones, with painting along the rim as well as on the inside. This painting is also stripes or simple geometric shapes. To the far south of Nakhichevan, we have a slightly different variation of this pottery, thus far found only at the site of Kultepe. 
The pottery here is also mostly chaff-tempered, and with a similar range of shapes to other eastern sites farther to the north, like Kamiltepe. Where it differs is in the fancy pottery itself. The fancy pottery here comes in two types, one which has been tempered with finely chalked chaff and with the surfaces very carefully smoothed before firing. The other type looks to have been made of either very pure, untempered clay, or with levigated or filtered clay, a process that we've also seen in the halaf. The pottery is then slipped in cream or light brown, and then either decorated with incised or cut-in designs, or painted with geometric shapes in brown, black, red, or a mix of these together. Of course, there is more to life in a Neolithic village than building your houses, making some tools and dishes, and then having a nice glass of evening wine. There are also the finer things in life, especially the pretty things that either decorated the home, decorate the person, or help to get the attention of the gods or to remember mythic stories. These are, of course, what I always think of as the fancy goodies. Some of these fancy goodies are types that we've seen in other parts of the Near East, like figurines. We get most of the figurines that we know about from central Transcaucasia, where we see a familiar type, seated female figurines. We've seen female figurines already being common in other regions, such as in the southern Levant or northern Mesopotamia during the 6th millennium, as well as earlier, although the ones here in Transcaucasia don't look quite the same. We know that these are female figurines because they have very prominent breasts, although the rest of the body was not given as much detailed attention. For example, the arms are either missing entirely or just vaguely suggested by little stubs or grooves in the sides of the figurine and the heads are thin, stalk-like protrusions at the top of the body, without much shape or detailing of the faces. We know that these figurines are mostly seated because we get their rather stubby little legs, without feet or other details, sticking out from the body at an angle, making it look like the figurines were designed to sit on top of a shelf. These figurines don't occur everywhere, though. For example, in the southwest of Transcaucasia, in the Ararat Plain, they're basically absent with even extensively excavated sites like Acheshen not having any figurines at all. In addition to figurines, we also get some truly fancy items, jewelry. These can be made of shell beads, carved from seashells, either from the Black Sea or the Caspian Sea, such as those that were found in a little bead-making workshop in one of the houses at a small site next to Kameltepe. We also get minerals, some of which have been made into beads, these are interesting because the most common minerals that we find, often in raw chunks, are malachite and andesite. Both of these are very pretty, with malachite being a bright green and andesite being a blue or a blue-green. These are also interesting because these minerals are also forms of copper ore. There are a lot of copper sources in the Caucasus, so these ores were probably locally available at a lot of sites. These are also the ores which can be most easily used to smelt copper, essentially just by putting the ores directly into the fire in a little dish to catch the copper that leaks out. We don't know if anyone in Neolithic Transcaucasia was experimenting with this, although we do have a few stray finds of copper. Some of these are just tiny fragments, such as those found at Kultepe in the southeast, or their jewelry, such as the copper disc beads that were found at Aruchulo in central Transcaucasia. Unfortunately, these beads were too degraded to tell if they were made out of naturally occurring pure copper hammered into shape, or if they were made out of copper smelted out of an ore like malachite. 
So while we don't have direct evidence for smelting, we do have at least some people in each region of Transcaucasia using copper, at least for jewelry. Even if the malachite and andesite that we find in the villages was just used for making pretty things, if people were keeping these ores around routinely, then we're essentially one really bad house fire away from somebody discovering how to smelt copper, which we will start to see happening here in Transcaucasia at the very beginning of the next millennium. While copper is exciting, and will be the next big technological leap forward that we see in the future, these copper beads and fragments are actually not the most exciting jewelry that we find in Neolithic Transcaucasia. You may remember from episode 21 and back in episode 15 when we talked about Cyprus, and I mentioned the exciting discoveries of carnelian beads on the island. Well, carnelian is exciting because it doesn't come necessarily from the Near East, but much more likely from farther away in parts of Central Asia or the Indian subcontinent. This would not have been traded directly between Cyprus and Central and Southern Asia, but would have traveled between a lot of hands indirectly. However, having carnelian beads end up at Cyprus was a sign that it was taking part in some really far-reaching trade networks. Well, Cyprus was not alone in being part of really far-reaching trade networks, as minerals from Central and Southern Asia, such as turquoise and carnelian, also turn up at sites in Transcaucasia towards the end of the 6th millennium. These are not particularly common, but at some sites, such as at Aruculo in central Transcaucasia, we have found several, including some that were not finished, suggesting that raw chunks of carnelian were being traded in and then were being made into beads and pendants locally. So when we look at the Neolithic and Transcaucasia, we may be looking at tiny farming villages nestled up near the mountains at the north of the Near East, where even the Neolithic took a few thousand years to make its way into the local landscape and local societies. But these tiny farming villages at the outer northern edge of the Near East had wine, advanced manufacturing techniques, far-flung connections, and the perfect setup for some of the earliest copper metallurgy in the world. After that lead-up to the next big leap forward in technology, Next time, we're going to take a step backwards and have a look at a culture that I've slightly mentioned but never really explained. Next time, we're going to very nearly finish off the Neolithic and have a look at a culture which was only generally a neighbor to the Halaf, mostly because it was a neighbor to the slightly earlier Hasuna culture. After dancing around it a bit over the last few episodes, it's time that we had a look at the question of the Samara culture in southern Mesopotamia. Actually, it's not just one question. With the Samara culture, we still have a lot of questions. Thank you for listening to the Prehistory Podcast. If you have any questions or comments, you can reach me at prehistorypodcast at gmail.com. If you'd like to see any examples of the villages, house complexes, pottery, tools, weapons, or jewelry from across Transcaucasia, then you can find these on the website at prehistorypodcast.com, along with a list of related books and articles for each episode. If you've enjoyed this episode, please give the podcast a rating and a review on your platform of choice to help others find it. And come back and join us next time when we have a look at the origins of the origins of Southern Mesopotamian civilization with the Samara culture. <laughs>